This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Soybeans are a nutrient-intensive crop, and getting the proper background nutrients and pH balance is important for their yield. Soybeans remove 0.8 pounds of phosphate and 1.4 pounds of potash per bushel from the soil. So a good 60 bushel yield would remove 50 pounds of phosphate and 84 pounds of potash. 60 bushels of soybeans would also need 200 pounds of nitrogen, so it is good that the root nodules make it for them. 60 bushels of soybeans also takes 10 pounds of sulfur, but generally the soil organic matter turns over enough to supply that during the summer. Generally, we think about starter fertilizer with corn more than soybeans, as there is more likely to be a growth response with corn than soybeans. This is largely as soybeans are planted in warmer soils. However, in low background phosphorus levels, soybeans can have a yield response to starter fertilizer, and also banding fertilizer along the planting rows. Ideally, the agronomic optimum background phosphorus level should be 20 parts per million. While phosphorus is important to soybeans, soybeans need potassium more than any other grain crop. Like phosphorus, potassium can be banded with background levels are low. In this area, we don't have a naturally high background potassium level like the rest of Kansas has. Soybeans have a very low tolerance to salt, so placement with the seed is not suggested. The agronomic optimum background potassium level is 130 parts per million. However, it takes more fertilizer to increase potassium levels than it does phosphorus. While most plants need slightly more potassium than they do phosphorus, the overall quantity of potassium in the soil is much greater. So increasing or decreasing background levels of the nutrient takes a longer time and more fertilizer. Old hay ground is most likely to be deficient in potassium, and it could take a thousand pounds over a period of years to increase potassium levels from the low to the 130 part per million agronomic optimum. Deficiencies in sulfur are more likely in sandier soils, but it can happen here as well if the field doesn't have a history of sulfur or potassium sulfate applications. The point of the agronomic optimum is really so the soybeans don't need to be fertilized at all. Everything can be applied before the corn or the wheat, and the soybeans not needing any nitrogen would be carried along, saving application cost and time. It is also important to test for zinc. In southeast Kansas and in southwest Missouri, fields often have a large background zinc level or nearly none, and it can be very variable within a field. It all depends on their location and the economic and industrial past. Boron is another nutrient that is rarely tested for and even more rarely fertilized for, but our natural soils have nearly none. Response rates to boron are difficult to determine as crops need very little of it. Basically, a couple of pounds of boron per acre would be all the field would ever need, though boron fertilizer would most likely need to be special ordered. In the end, everything begins with a soil test, and there is still time to take a soil test before the soybeans get planted. For tips about soybean fertility and how to take your soil test, please give me a call at 620-778-1037. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent from the Wildcat Extension District. Range scientist Keith Harmony is doing a series over the rules of thumb, or short phrases used to simplify decisions that need to be made to manage pastures. Some of these rules of thumb have merit in scientific or economic data to support them. However, some of the rules of thumb may be unfounded and lack informational support. Take half and leave half. This is probably the most common and most important rule of thumb for rangeland managers to follow. 
Studies have shown that when around half of the growing season's top growth is removed, animal performance and vegetative production are at near optimum levels and performance can be sustained over a long period of time. At the correct stocking rate, half of the 50% of growth that is removed during the growing season, which would be 25% for the whole year, is actually ingested by grazing animals. The other 25% of the total growth that disappears does so by consequence of trampling, defecation, wildlife use, insect feeding, and natural weathering of the plant material. The half of the total growth that should remain standing through the growing season is needed for leaves to continue to photosynthesize to produce carbohydrates for new leaf material for maintaining and producing new root growth and for storage during the dormant season to serve as an energy source to initiate new plant growth. The right stocking rate for a pasture balances forage availability with animal removal to achieve this concept of take half and leave half on a sustainable basis. Another common rule of thumb is if it's not grass, it's a weed. Studies do not support this rule of thumb. Cattle prefer grass, but studies show that up to 25% of grazing cattle diets consist of broadleaf plants, also known as forbs, especially early in the growing season. Many forbs are high in protein and are highly digestible when young and still immature. Forbs can be important for animals to maintain a high quality diet. Rangelands contain many forbs that are native legumes, which are especially high in protein and benefit animal nutrition. One of the most common forbs on Kansas rangeland is western ragweed. Grazing studies have shown that animals may consume 49% of the ragweed vegetation produced during a growing season. Western ragweed will start to reduce native grass production when 40% of the pasture is ragweed. Rain has a lot of impact on ragweed growth. It will decline quickly through extended droughts. Some broadleaf plant problems do occur in pastures, especially when nauseous weeds are considered. But just because a plant is not a grass does not mean that it's not beneficial to the grazing animal or to the pasture ecosystem. For more information on rangeland management, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Raccoons are common throughout Kansas. The black face mask and ring tail are their distinguishing characteristics. Adult raccoons in Kansas can weigh 8 to 49 pounds and measure 26 to 38 inches long. Breeding season for raccoons is in February and with a gestation period of 63 days, young are born in April and May. There is usually one litter per year of 4 to 7 young. At birth, the young furry animals weigh about two and a quarter ounces. They are born blind, but their eyes open within 30 days. Young raccoons stay in the den until they are eight to 10 weeks old. 
They are weaned in August. Raccoons prefer wooded areas near streams, rivers, or other water sources to build their dens. Raccoons are omnivores and eat a variety of foods. Among them, small animals such as crawfish, clams, fish, frogs, snails, small mammals, and insects, and vegetables and fruit, including cherries, apples, nuts, and grains. Like many other animals, raccoons are opportunists, eating pet food, garbage, or other foods they find in urban and suburban areas. Most daily movements of raccoons are within a relatively small area called a home range. According to researchers in Iowa, male raccoons normally have a home range no larger than two square miles, while female home ranges do not exceed 1.4 square miles and juvenile raccoons have an even smaller home range of about 0.6 square miles. Depending upon the availability of resources such as food, rest, and denning sites, home ranges of raccoons in other states may vary considerably. In general, ranges are smaller where resources are plentiful. To manage problem raccoons, two options are frightening devices and food and cover reduction. Frightening devices are effective because raccoons are nocturnal, using various frightening devices such as lights, noisemakers, or playing a radio during the night can reduce damage. However, these methods are not effective for long because raccoons adapt to them. Food and cover reduction is a long-term solution to manage your home so you don't invite raccoon problems to begin with. You can do this by not leaving pet food outside at night and placing garbage in sealed metal containers. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a David Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Site selection is important when planning out a garden because sometimes the garden will need alternative growing methods to overcome site-related challenges. Typically, these challenges will be soil-related, either from too much clay or bad drainage. Gardening in raised beds will provide elevation and better soil structure to give anything you want to grow a better chance of survival in wet, rainy southeast Kansas. Raised beds and containers can also be moved to new locations easily, which can protect tender plants in winter, and go vertical to provide gardening in confined spaces such as small yards or apartment balconies. Raised beds are typically made out of lumber, but can also be recycled materials like old tires or plastic. If building the beds out of lumber, the beds are usually raised off the ground 6 to 8 inches. Size can vary, but the width of the bed should not be greater than 4 feet to allow for easy reaching of plants from either side of the bed. Treated lumber is a divisive topic when it comes to building raised bed gardens. Much lumber is treated with preservatives to prevent decay from molds or feeding from insects. Detractors will state that there are many pest-resistant lumber types, like cedar, that should be used instead, while advocates of treated lumber will claim that naturally resistant lumbers are more expensive and still wear out faster, increasing replacement costs. Research has shown that the chemicals used in treated lumber are generally safe for food plants to grow in, 
but if still concerned about the chemicals, you can use treated lumber and line the insides of the newly constructed bed with a plastic lining to keep your soil from leaching those chemicals out of the wood. Used tires are one other popular material for elevating garden plantings, but as with treated wood, they are another hotly debated part of raised bed gardening. Unlike with treated lumber, there are no research studies analyzing the effects of used tires on garden soil. Much of the appeal of using tires as raised beds comes from the idea that you are preventing tires from being landfilled or burned and is viewed as a form of recycling. However, because of the many chemicals in tires that are easily mobile in the soil, anything planted in used tires should be ornamental only, such as flowers or annuals, and plastic should line the inside of the tires to prevent those chemicals from making their way into the soil. When designing containers, you should choose plants based on three principles, spillers, fillers, and thrillers. Spillers will hang over the side of the container, fillers will fill in any open soil space, and thrillers are the visual focal point of the design. Typically, there will only be one thriller per container. All container plants should be selected with the expectation that container gardens dry out faster than in the ground gardens. Plants selected for their low water needs will do better in containers and raised beds than plants that require more moisture, unless you are committed to the extra maintenance that they will need. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.